our scripture reading that will be responsive comes from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 25. We'll be reading responsively verses 6 through 9. And then the New Testament reading it comes from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 23, verse 50 through 24, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Now from Luke chapter 23, verse 50 through 24, verse 1. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. You've not only called us to be prophets, witnesses, taking Christ out into the world through the way we live, by what we say, what we do. That's where we've been this week, Father. We've come back to your house on the Lord's day. We pray that you'll bless that gospel that we tried to live out this week as the world looked on. You've also called us to be priests. And when we come into this place on the Lord's day, we remember that it's not just the ministers or the elders or deacons that are priests, that we're all priests, that your son called us to be priests, all of us together, priesthood of believers. And so we come, Father, bringing our children, our grandchildren, bringing our parents and grandparents, bringing our family and those that work with us during the week, 
our neighbors, we come bringing them before you this morning in prayer. We pray for Phil and Sally Halley on this day. And Father, he has not been able to be with us. We pray that on this day that you would bless them in a very special way. We pray that yet, Father, that you would restore Phil and movement in his arms and legs. But above all, I pray that you would bless Phil and Sally, that they would know your presence, that you would give them incredible strength, strength of soul and strength of mind, strength of heart, strength of body, as they trust your word. We pray for Jennifer Post this morning, Father, that you would wipe away the tears of sorrow. We pray that as they, she makes decisions about that has to be made as you called her father this week. We pray that you would bless her and give her strength for this time. Give her peace. Give her wisdom in the decisions that she must make with her family. Now, Father, <clears throat> we ask together that you would teach us. John Sartell is not able to teach or preach so that we would hear, so that we would be changed in the very core of our being, so that we would grow in Christ. And Father, you're able to teach that way in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we, Father, lift our voices together, asking you to teach us. Oh, Father, bring the power of the resurrection to us in great, great strength this morning. We're your children. That's who we are, and we're simply asking our Father to teach us. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. It sounds like an ominous beginning this morning with this title, but it doesn't end that way. A dark, hopeless, and unbelieving Saturday. Joseph of Arimathea is an enigma to me. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. Yet he did not agree with their judgment against Jesus. Somewhere along the way, he had become a follower of Jesus, but he kept it a secret. John wrote that Joseph feared his friends in the Sanhedrin. Look at John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. He lived in fear of being discovered. Yet, yet, when Jesus died, when it seemed over, when the disciples had forsaken Jesus, when the claims of Jesus had seemed to be proven false, that that was when Joseph stepped forth 
and publicly aligned himself with Jesus. Why then? All seemed lost. When all seemed for naught, that's the enigma of Joseph of Arimathea. I want to ask him, Joseph, why now? Why you risk your life when the story is over? This man you thought was a Messiah is dead. Joseph buried that man in whom he had faith. He buried the man in whom he had hope. And he had buried his faith and hope on that Friday evening. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? I'm asking that right now. I want you to answer it in your own mind, your own heart. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe what you confessed that you believe this morning? Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. That's what we said we believe. Do you believe that individually? Our enlightened culture, a culture come of age, our secular and brilliantly, brilliantly educated culture just will not believe in the supernatural. Even in seminary, a seminary owned and operated by the church, I was told that I should follow the lead of the secular culture. We must do away with Jesus as a son of God. It was fine to believe in his ethical teaching. But he was not the son of God, they told me. He was not born of a virgin. Thus, we must do away with his miracles. Because he's not the son of God who can do such things. Oh, he was a great moral teacher, they told me. We've not only done away with the supernatural in Jesus. Our culture has done away with the supernatural in creation. Creation was not a supernatural event that began with God. But they've also done away with the supernatural aspect of Scripture. This is what we call it the Bible, we call it Scripture. What is it? It's the Word of God. We could, for the rest of our time, just read scriptures that testify to the supernatural nature of Scripture. We'll just read one. 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. He couldn't. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was a supernatural thing. Think about it. I love this. I just love this part of the message. There are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. If you're not a believer, what are you going to do with them? The prophecies are very definite. He would be from David's family. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would live in Nazareth. He would spend some time in Egypt. He would be of the tribe of Judah. He would be born of a virgin. He would make blind people see. He would make paralyzed people walk. 
and the deaf he would make them hear. All of this is not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Sometimes the Old Testament description of him seems contradictory. Contradictory. He would be a prophet, and yet he would be a priest. He would be a king, and yet he would be a servant. He would be Messiah. But as a Messiah, he would die a very humiliating, hard death. That's in the Old Testament. He would be holy. He would be holy and yet crucified with thieves. Very definite events. Many of them seem impossible to be fulfilled in one man. How could he be born in Bethlehem, spend time in Egypt, and be called a Nazarene? How could he be a king and be a servant? These prophecies gave details. The prophecies gave these details 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900 years before Jesus was born. It's 2023. You tell me, tell me this morning about a man who will be born eight or 900 years from now. Let's say 2995. Tell me where he will be born, what he will do. Tell me his name. Tell me about his life in detail. Not some generalizations about what the world will be like then, no. Tell me about a single individual who will be president. Where will he be born? What will he accomplish while he's president? How will he die? Where will he live? You say to me, that's humanly impossible. Yes, and that's exactly what the prophets did. Even the burial of Jesus that we read this morning by Joseph of Arimathea was prophesied in the Old Testament. Did you know that? In Isaiah 53, as Isaiah writes in detail about the death of Jesus, it's like he was standing at Calvary looking. Here, let's read it. Listen to these familiar words. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Oh, here's the precious. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, inflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this passage, describing the crucifixion, in the ninth verse we read this. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. What do we read in each of the four Gospels? He was crucified between two thieves and he was buried in the unused tomb of a wealthy aristocrat of Israel. 
Look at Matthew 27, 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man, a rich man from Arimathea. That's what Isaiah said. Named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. We all love to hear stories. I love to hear stories about how people came to Christ. Let me tell you an unusual story. Flavia Neopolis was born a hundred years after Jesus. He was from a wealthy pagan family. We don't know whether he was either Greek or Roman. We don't know which one. He was traveled. He was well-educated. He sought for truth. He studied the Stoics. He studied Aristotle. He studied Plato. He studied the Epicureans. But it was not at a great university in the ancient world that he was to reach the end of his quest. He was walking of all places. He was walking along the beach one day, but deep in thought, and he met an old man. The old man was kind and deep. And there was a dignity about him. He told Flavia Neopolis about the Hebrew prophets, how they had foretold in detail about the one who was to come. He told him how one had come and fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Flavia began to read the old prophets and was fascinated by how they described the Messiah who was to come. He became well acquainted with the Messiah just from reading the Old Testament prophets. Then he read the life of Jesus in the Gospels. He was thoroughly changed. He became an evangelist, a Christian apologist, a Christian philosopher, a preacher. His name was changed to Justin Martyr. He's one of the early church fathers. In In 166 A.D., While in Rome, he was seized, scourged, and beheaded. He came to faith in Jesus through the testimony of the Old Testament prophets. Yet, with even all the Old Testament prophets fulfilled, prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, with all those, even with all the miracles that attested to the deity, of Jesus no one no one no one was looking for the resurrection Joseph of Arimathea on that Friday evening that's when they buried him what don't you read in the gospels at this point what is missing You don't read about the faith of the disciples on Saturday. Saturday was a high and holy day, the Sabbath day of the Passover. We know there was a Roman guard unit placed at the tomb on that day. The tomb now bore a Roman seal. The greatest event in human history, even as great as the incarnation, was about to take place. When Jesus spoke of his death, And he did this often in the last months of his ministry. When he spoke of his death, he included the resurrection. Even the Pharisees knew this. Even the Pharisees knew it. Look at Matthew 27, 62. When they went to Pilate that Saturday morning, 
The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I'll rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure, to be sealed until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Do you see that? Even the Pharisees knew what he said. They remembered his words. How could the disciples not remember? But the sealing of the tomb, that's the only action we read that took place on that Saturday. The disciples, that 12 that had sworn they would never forsake him. They didn't set up a vigil. The women, the women who had been at Calvary, they followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb to see where he would be buried. They followed at a distance. They knew where the tomb was. They did not set up a vigil. Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus They didn't set up a vigil. Why? They were not waiting for a resurrection. They should have been waiting. They should have been expecting. They should have been there reminding each other of the Old Testament description of his death and resurrection. Folks, no one. No one was expecting him. All the disciples had gone dark. When the gospel writers returned to the story, it's Sunday. It's Sunday morning, the first day of the week. They completely skipped Saturday. The women were on their way to the tomb, not to set up a vigil, not expecting, not in anticipation. They were going to anoint him with the spices. Get were to be sprinkled into the burial cloths. Now Nicodemus, when he joined Joseph at the burial, had bought an amount of spices which only a very, very wealthy person could afford. So they had already done this, but the women would not be outdone. They would make their contribution. And that is their credit. But the point is, they arrived at the tomb to anoint a dead body. When they reported to the disciples that Jesus had risen, you got the, you know, I love the picture of the disciples here. They, they were making themselves, you know, when people accuse this of something, the disciples, they're making themselves look really bad here. Do you understand that? Really bad. When they, when they got there, look at Luke 24. They went back to to tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. They thought these women had lost their mind. When the risen Jesus caught up with the two errant disciples leaving, remember when when Jesus was making himself known that, that Saturday morning? And there's this story in Luke 24 that he 
he catches up with his two errant disciples, probably going home. They were leaving Jerusalem. What did they say to him? Luke 24, 21. We had hoped he was the one to, re- to redeem Israel. They had given up. Their unbelief blinded their eyes and minds to all that they had seen and heard. Jesus had proved himself over and over again. He had done what no human being is able to do. He had commanded. He had commanded the blind to see. He had commanded the leper to be healed. He had commanded the deaf to hear. He commanded the paralyzed to walk. He stopped storms just by command. He even raised the dead. Well, it was like he had done none of these things. What if you knew somebody had done all these things and you had watched it for three years, time after time after time? Wow. He had said, I'll die at the hands of the world. He had told his disciples over and over again. But on the third day, I'll be raised. He was saying, don't be panicked. Now the crucifixion is going to be awful. But I'm going to rise. I'm going to come back. But it's like he said none of those things. Unbelief, folks, unbelief can be blinding. This all is weird to look at this. We should look at it in fear. That's how blinding unbelief can be, and we haven't even scratched the surface of it. Jesus proved his deity over and over again. He proved his identity. If you are struggling with the identity of Jesus, if you're struggling with his claims, look at these disciples. They had seen it all. What was their confession? What had been their confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what they had said. But on that Saturday... They were unbelieving. None of his followers, the disciples of the inner circle, the women who had been there even at Calvary, not Nicodemus, nor Joseph. Now they buried Nicodemus and Joseph, buried Jesus out of their love for him. They would not let him be thrown into an open pit all with all the other bodies of the criminals that were crucified. No, they loved him. All these others had loved him too. But their Messiah would not have been crucified. Their Messiah would have come into that city and gone to the palace and reigned like David had done. Unbelief can be blinding. Two disciples on the Emmaus Road summed it up. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Past tense had hoped. It was over. What were they missing? They were forgetting the three years of miracles, three years of Jesus doing only what God could do. They had forgotten Lazarus. They had forgotten Lazarus, who just two weeks previous, it had been two weeks since Jesus stood before that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And Jesus told them. He told Peter, I'm going to be crucified. I'm coming back. John I'm going to be crucified, but I'm coming back. He was saying, don't be horrified. Don't give up hope at the cross. Expect me. Look for me. That's what he was saying. 
And they didn't. Unbelief can be binding. Look at the Pharisees. This is where it becomes absurd. Do not miss this. Their unbelief is incredible. They hated Jesus. The Pharisees did. Hated him. But do you notice that the Pharisees, if, if you're not a believer, you, you really need to see this. Listen to me. These Pharisees are real men. They never said, oh, Jesus didn't do these things. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. They couldn't. I mean, this shouts to you about his deity. They saw him make blind people see. They saw him heal lepers, and they never went home and said to their wives, well, that was fake, it was phony, he really didn't do that. No, they went home and said, he's evil, he's a blasphemer, he claims to be God. They never went home and said, he didn't do those things. So what did they do with these miracles? Look at Matthew 12, 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Jesus was an evil blasphemer, claimed to be God. He was satanic, they were saying. His powers came from Satan. People, unbelief can be that blinding. So what happened? They were there. They they were there when Lazarus died. They went to his funeral. And then they were called back because they heard Jesus raised him from the dead. And so there was a post-resurrection. Yeah, I've never been to a post-resurrection celebration. And in a way, that's what we're celebrating today. But I mean of someone, of another human being that died. I've never been to a post. I've never gone. Now I've gone to parties after the funeral as we celebrated the person's life. But that person was not there. They went to a post-resurrection party. There stood Lazarus. Last time they seen, saw him, he had been a corpse. How did they handle that? What did they do with the resurrection of Lazarus? Look at John 12, 9 through 11. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing. They were going to kill Jesus. Now we got to kill not only Jesus, but we got to get rid of Lazarus. Unbelief is blinding. So what do you say about him? What do you say? If you're struggling to believe, I can tell you this. It's not because of a lack of evidence. It wasn't because of a lack of evidence with the disciples, with Nicodemus, or with Joseph of Arimathea. It wasn't because of a lack of evidence with the Pharisees. In their sin, they were blinded to his miracles. They were blinded and forgetting his words. Well, what do you do with the evidence? We're at the end. What do you do with the evidence? 
we need this message. We need it worse than ever. We have been bombarded by this secular, godless world from kindergarten through graduate school. It's constant. Well, hear this. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Biblical faith is intelligent. It is wise. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God and son of man? Do you believe in the reality of the physical resurrection? Folks, we live in the midst of a powerful secular culture dedicated to the goal of eradicating the supernatural from every segment of society, including the church. That's what they were trying to do with me when I was in seminary. Got to get rid of it. Study the history of communist Russia in the 20th century. Its stated purpose, stated purpose, was to get rid of the supernatural. We're going to get rid of the Bibles. We're going to get rid of the church. We're going to get rid of Christians. Study the history of communist China. This is the stated purpose of its government. If you stand in the middle of those cultures and say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will suffer their wrath. And now in the United States, you're living, we are living in this precious place. We are living in the midst of a secular, intolerant culture whose written and unwritten purpose is to establish a way of life without God. To establish a way of life without the supernatural. To establish a way of life without God's word. You do. We're celebrating the resurrection this morning. You do understand that our culture would say you're nuts. He wasn't the son of God. His body rotted in that tomb. They claim to be building a utopian dream. But look around you, it's turning into a dystopian nightmare. Go into the public square of our secular culture and say, I believe this is God's word. I believe this is God's word. Say that. I believe Jesus was and is God incarnate. I believe he died, rose again, is reigning in glory. That he will return as promised. You as know as well as I do what the response would be. Now I know what some of you are thinking as a Christian because I see it all around us every day in the evangelical church. Well, we've got to be careful about going out in the culture and saying those things. Because we want to be able to minister to the culture. We want the culture to think well of us. Okay, so I'm not going out and say it just like that, John. I'm not going out and say, I believe this is God's word. I believe Jesus was and is God incarnate. I believe he died, rose again, his reign and glory. I'm not going to say it like that. I have one question. As a Christian, what part of the gospel do you plan to leave out to get the world to listen to you? 
because you can't speak one word of the gospel without bringing the supernatural into it. All right. That's a bad part. I love what happened to those disciples on that glorious morning of the first day of the week. There is no record of those disciples ever returning to that awful, dark, hopeless, unbelieving Saturday. They would not go back. They lived their lives in the midst of a pagan Roman Empire, confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord. They looked forward to joining Him in glory. Or they looked forward to His promised return. They lived expectant lives, anticipating lives. Why? Because they knew He was alive. And they had learned it once and for all that he was a savior and Lord of all. How will we live in the midst of this powerful secular culture? We will either live like the disciples did on that dark, hopeless, unbelieving Saturday. Or we will live with the anticipation of seeing him when he calls us home. And we will live with the expectation of seeing him when he returns. And we will live it and shout it to the world. Amen. Our hymn is a great, great resurrection hymn. It's a more contemporary hymn, but we've learned it and it's precious to us here at Christ's Covenant. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Let's stand as we sing.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.